0: What is the Ahl-Sunnah-Wal-Jama'a understanding on two things? I'll just review on Fiqh and asul fiqh because unfortunately in this day and age just like a lot of people have misconceptions on tasawwuf, a lot of people have misconceptions on the madhab-based approach to Islamic jurisprudence. In reality, there are just two approaches. Either you take within the people of taqwa. Of course, there are people outside ilm taqwa that are modernists and moderates and liberals and all of that, that is separate. But for those people who believe in halal and haram, for those people who believe that hijab is far, that interest is haram, who believe in the veracity and the hak of jihad and all of that, you will find two positions among Sunnis. Those who believe that one should take a madhab-based approach to Islamic law and legal theory and a second group which says that we should dispense with the madhab-based approach to Islamic law and legal theory. The Ahlus sunnah wil jama position is that you should take a mother based approach to Islamic law and legal theory. And the other position is sometimes referred to itself as Salafi or Al-Hadith, is sometimes referred to by others as Ghir-Muqallid or Wahhabi. I think none of these terms are appropriate. We should simply call it non mother approach. That is the most fair, neutral, sensitive, scholarly term and a lot of you know a lot of the problem happens when we use labels that can be incendiary that can be inflammatory or we engage in casting negative stereotypes so we should stay away from that we should not call one group blind followers we should not call the other group fanatic wahhabis these are unfortunate labels that distort the situation actually it is an ill discussion that do you want to take a madha-based approach to Islamic jurisprudence or do you think that we should dispense with a mother based approach to Islamic jurisprudence that is the most fair, soft, balanced, sensitive way I can present this issue to you in English. The mother based approach to Islamic law and legal theory says that, number one, first let me start where both of them agree. Everyone agrees that there are certain things in the Quran and Hadith that are absolutely unequivocal and do not leave any room for disagreement or difference of opinion. In such cases, there is no need to follow any Islamic jurisprudence, let alone any quote-unquote approach to Islamic jurisprudence. One should simply do amal direct on the Quran and Hadith. For example, if you want to know how many rak'ahs are farad in Zohar Salah, you do not need a madhab to tell you that. You do not need usul to tell you that. You do not need usulul fiqh to tell you that. You do not need a faqih writing a fiqh textbook to tell you that. You will do amul direct on the Qur'an and hadith and the hadith will tell you clearly unequivocally that the number of rakats for the fard of zuhr salah is four. You don't need an interface between you and the text in these issues. Everybody agrees on that. Second, everybody agrees that there exist certain verses and certain ahadith that are open to multiple interpretation. This is a, I mean, there may be a few people who are in their passion they try to deny this reality, but by and large every single Islamic scholar has accepted this fact that there are verses in the Quran and there are hadith in the sunnah that are open to interpretation that are, are, are emanating possible multiple meanings plus there are sometimes hadith that are in contradiction to one another. Right, the example we gave in the earlier workshop was the issue of Rafayadan. You will find hadith and Sahih Muslim to do Then, You will find mention of hadith and Sahih Muslim not to do Then, And you need to pray and you need to decide whether you're going to do then or not do Rafayadan. Right? And even if you take the high ground and think, okay, the Prophet ﷺ did both, there were Sahaba who did both, both her Right? still you as an individual need to decide how you are going to pray, right, even if you're being soft and sensitive and saying my decision doesn't mean I'm negating the other side, doesn't mean I'm invalidating the other side, but still end of the energy you need to decide. So, the way we interface That is the science of usul. Sometimes it's usul al tafsir, sometimes it's usul al hadith, sometimes it's usul al fiqh, but the science of usul is the interface between the scholar, not the on person, between the scholar. Just like I say, the science, the, the physics of electricity is the interface between the electrical engineer and the product he is designing. It's not the interface between me and that product because I don't know anything. About physics or electrical engineering. But the knowledge of usul is the interface between the scholar and the texts when those texts are suggestive of multiple meanings or there are multiple texts that may be in suggesting divergent meanings and even contradictory meanings to one another. That is how the whole science of usul, be it usul al tafsir or usul al hadith or usul al fiqh, all three of them develop. Because the scholar needs tools with which to interact and engage in those texts to be able to identify which text is going to be the basis of either what he writes in his tafsir or what he writes in his commentary in the hadith or what he writes in a book of Islamic law as what is the mas'ala or what is the legal position on any known matter. The ulama of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jamal say that when there is and you know Part of the reason why the group that favors a non mother approach to Islamic jurisprudence, the first difference is that there's an issue, and in their view, this issue falls in the first category, that the Quran and Hadith are absolutely clear on this issue. And the view of the people who take a mother approach is that, no, actually, you know, it's not that clear. And this is the number one difference, actually, if I were to really simplify it for you, and again, we spent many, many hours on this in February, March, and April, but this one issue is what's caused all the confusion. And what you need is both sides to realize that they're looking at the issue differently. So that person who is coming from the perspective, he thinks that, no, this one single Sahih which is a Khabar Wahid, which is reported through only one Sahaba, for them, that one single Sahih is enough to wipe away all of the other evidence on the table and therefore they think that the issue now is crystal clear and not subject to interpretation. And then they get really upset when they see someone else taking a different position. Now, why is the other person taking another position? It's because they don't think that that single sahih hadith is enough to solve the issue. They are looking at other evidences. They may be looking at other hadith. They may be looking at Quran, they may be looking at amal of Sahaba. they may be looking at fatwa of Sahaba. they're looking at other things. So for them, the matter is not resolved. So both agree that if the matter is unequivocally resolved by the text, then you don't need a sul. But the difference is, is that one person thinks it has been resolved and the other one doesn't think it's resolved. Because one person is only looking at one sahih Hadith, and the other one is looking at a whole series of other things. Just to give you an example and to also illustrate to you that this is not some Arab Desi thing. And a lot of people in Pakistan have misunderstood this. They think this is an Arab versus Desi thing or they think this is a Salafi versus Hanafi thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. And first of all you should know that the vast majority of Arabs are still on the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah but the Arabs that Pakistanis interact with are Saudi and Gulf Arabs which are very, as you know, very small populations. Arabs are Egyptians and Jordans and Syrians and Iraqis, right? And Mauritanians and Moroccans and etc. And Syria, for example, is majority Hanafi and minority uh, Shafi. And in a handful of Salafis, it's like 50% Hanafi, 40% Shafi and 10% Salafi. Iraq is 80% Hanafi. The Arabs, who are Sunnis, and the Kurds, who are Sunnis, are Shafi. There's hardly any Salafi presence in Iraq. Jordan is a mix, Palestine is a mix, Egypt is largely Maliki, right? But because we go on Umrah and Hajj, or many Pakistanis live and work in Jaddar, Riyadh, Dhamam, Dahran, etc., we have interaction with a very small subset of Arabs. So to give you an example, Imam Malik, Rihumullah, Imam Malik sometimes in his Muatta, which is the book of Hadith, he actually mentions a Hadith, the Hadith is 110% Sahih, and then he writes this very famous sentence of his La We don't use it. We don't do Amal on this hadith. Allah Akbar. And see, and that's why I always find it so funny that sometimes people use this not against Imam Malik, people say, Oh look, Fala alim hadith khilaf khalafjarah. I think I forget Fala alim. look at Imam Malik. He himself is narrator of hadith. He himself is compiling the hadith. He himself is teaching. The Muatta is the book that was written by different scribes who were students of Imam Malik. So actually Imam Malik is teaching Hadith in Madinu Munawurah to, and he is, of the, uh, he is of the Tabai Tabin, and he's teaching Hadith in medina to other Tabai Tabin in Masjid Nubi. He says the Hadith right next to the Rosa and says, La <laughs> We don't do Amal on it. So Why? Is it because Imam Malik na'udhu billah doesn't love the Prophet sallallahu alaihi No way. Is it because Imam Malik does not an alam of hadith? No way. Is it because Imam Malik prefers his own ijtihad over hadith? That is also kufr. How can you prefer your own ijtihad over the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu It's because Imam Malik is looking at something else. What Imam Malik used to say and this is his usul we can agree or disagree with it but the point is at least we should understand it. Right? Uh, and Imam Malik his usul was, that look, I don't just look at the textual reports of the practice of the Prophet Sallallahu I also look at the practice of the Sahaba. And specifically, he looked at the practice in Medina. And he was a Tabai tabin, which means he's a student of the tabin, right? If you were here yesterday, I already explained that to you. And he saw that all of the tabin of Medina do not do Rafayadan. So he says, all of tabin of Medina do not do Rafay'adan. On the one other side, I have one sahih hadith that says do rafiah then, for he would say one sahih hadith is what one sahaba. So he said I have one sahaba's call that it is sunnah to do rafiah then, and I have all of these tabeens amal that it is sunnah not to do rafiah then. So he would look at that, because he, his view is that the amal of Medina preserves the sunnah, because the tabeen that he saw, because he was the students of the tabeen. Those tabi'in must have met the sahaba. Who taught them to pray salah? The sahaba of Medina. And maybe one or two could have missed Rafayadin, but for all of the tabi'in of Medina to miss, it, miss out on it, it must mean that they were taught to do salah by the sahaba of Medina to not do Rafayadin. It's just an example I'm giving you, right? So for one scholar who picks up and looks exclusively at one sahih Hadith, he thinks that the issue is settled. For him, this issue now falls in first category. That I told you, that when the Quran and Hadith are unequivocal, absolutely crystal clear, and the evidence is clear as the light of day on an issue, then you don't need usul and madhab and ijtihad and fiqh. You just do amal on the Hadith. So scholar one puts this issue in that area because they're only looking at that sahih hadith. Scholar number two has expanded his workshop. And he looks at hadith, he also looks at amal of sahaba, also looks at fatwa of sahaba, is looking at other things as representations of the sunnah. Scholar number two views the amal of sahaba as, the, as another representation of sunnah. Not just their textual transmissions, but also their lived life. And for scholar number two, then, this issue is not settled. For scholar number two, this issue comes in category number two, in which there, the, the workshop of different sources of understanding of our deen is leading to multiple possible meanings. And so, really, that's when sometimes, and, and, and unfortunately, many times the people on the first side don't understand that or they don't acknowledge that. And that's why they use lots of fiery rhetoric. You know, that fiery rhetoric. Are you going to follow Imam Malik or are you going to follow the Prophet? Are you going to follow Abu Hanifa or are you going to follow the Prophet? Are you going to follow Deobandi Mufti or the Prophet? Allah Akbar. Well, I would pick Prophet. What do I care about Dhirvanli Mufti? Are you going to follow Dhirvanli Mufti or Sahih Bukhari? Right? But, as- everybody is following the deen. It's just a question of how expanded or constricted is our understanding of the sources of the deen. What do we just view as a source? If you view Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim as the only sources of the deen after the Quran, then yes, if that is your usool, that itself is an usool. If that is your principle, and that is your methodology, then a lot of issues that for the ulama of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jamaah, for the Fuqaha, Muhtahilin, Imam Shafi, Imam Ahmad ibn hanbal even Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn qayyim ibn al jawziyah for Imam al for all of them, for them because they expanded their understanding of sources, they saw many more nuances. But if we're going to restrict our sources to Bukhari and Muslim, then we won't see those multiple, those multiple interpretations, won't come out. To give you an example of the Hadith scholars' understanding of Fiqh. You see, one is an alim of the chains of Hadith, the chains of narration. The great ulama of the chains of narration were people like Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Imam Tirmidhi, Imam Amudawd, and they used their knowledge of narrators and they used their knowledge of the chains of narration to compile books of Hadith that me and you still use to this day in the entire ummah is indebted to them for using their incredible knowledge of the chains of Hadith to compile these books. There's a second type of muhaddith, and he is an alim not so much of the chains of the Hadith, he is an alim of the meanings of Hadith. And these are those Mahadithin who write commentaries on the Hadith books. So I'll, I'm going to give you an example of the two universally acknowledged by everyone as the two of the greatest alims of Hadith. Number one, who is universally acknowledged as the greatest alim of Bukhari. His name is Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. And he's written a commentary called Fath al Bari on the Sahih of Bukhari. And Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani was Shafi and Madhab. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani openly, repeatedly professes his adherence to the Shafi Madhab in his book. Such a big alim of hadith, but the greatest alim of Bukhari... But even then, he felt that when it comes to Islamic jurisprudence, I'm going to follow a mother based approach. I'm going to take a set of usul and base my understanding of those issues that are not resolved by the text alone, but require some type of methodology, some type of principles, some type of hermeneutics, some type of usul to resolve them. I'm going to follow a mother for that. Second, the greatest alim of the Sahih of Muslim is Imam al Nawawi. Imam Nawawi has written the greatest commentary, Shara ala sahih Muslim, and Imam Nawawi, may Allah ta'ala, also shafi, also shafi, and openly. And nobody has denied this in history. There are a few extreme people from one side who are trying to do what in in Western social sciences we call revisionist history. That they're trying to rewrite history such that it is a narrative that leads to their conclusion. This is called revisionist history in the Western Academy. That you reconstruct the historical narrative so that it, that narrative leads to your position. A handful of people are trying to go back and rewrite the history and the views of Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani of Imam al Nawi. Otherwise, 99% of the ulama of this ummah from whatever side have had to submit to this historical fact that Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani and Imam al Nawi both of these two greatest alims of hadith chose to follow a madhab-based approach to Islamic law and legal theory. All of this I was mentioning to get a feel for the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. And in my own view, I actually include Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al Jazeah in Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. And having had the fortune and the fuzzle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only, His fuzzle and grace... To have read these two authors widely, uh, I have come to the conclusion that 80 to 90% of what they said and wrote was in complete concordance with ahl Sunnah wal jamal And it's only 10 to 20% when they came up with positions on the basis of their own scholar, scholarly knowledge, their element their taqwa. But they came up with positions that were departures from the classical Islamic scholarly tradition. What's unfortunate is that the way that they are represented in English and in Urdu is just that 10 and 20%. And so when you read English books or Urdu books, even translations of Ibn Taymiyyah, they select those works of his and those passages of those works of his in which he has departed from the tradition. And therefore you will think that it's totally something different. So an average person will be given this impression that Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Tayyum al-Jazi on one side and Imam Munifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi, Imam al Hanbal, and all of their students, Nawi, Ghazali, etc., on the other side. But it's not really like that. Uh, and Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al-Jaziyah were by and large Hanbali. There were a few excesses that took place in their time. There were a few people who were very partisan towards a madhab, such that they were becoming extreme partisans for a madhab. And Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim al-Jaziyah took kind of a reaction to that. And the reaction was justified but sometimes the extent of the reaction was a little bit too harsh. In particular, Ibn Qayyim al jawzi and I've been reading this book of his and actually brought it with me uh, in Arabic. Elam uh, al his section on takleed is very harsh, Allah Akbar. Very harsh, right? But when one person understands him and a person should still love him for all the in- other incredible work that he has done and even love him for this because he wrote that out of his ikhlas, his niyat was pure, right? And it's unfortunate that the way that and this is presented to the masses is a very confrontational thing. But these are you know scholarly disagreements, and they can only be understood and appreciated and kept in context and not made a source of fitna by the scholars. But when you let these scholarly disagreements spill over into the masses, then it becomes discord, it becomes fitna, and it becomes confrontational.